I was interested in the talk coming from different opposites, as it were. So um, you were talking about the worldly world and then a world which is perceived as something other, almost like the holy and the unholy, like which is a Christ, which is a sort of Jewish concept to define the difference between the godly and the ungodly. So Buddhism doesn't have a god, and it often comes from the view that uh, samsara is nibbana, the lotus grows out of the muddy pond. So isn't any concept that we have of ourselves just a concept? Thank you for the question. <laughs> How do I answer that? Yes, it is, a it is a concept. You know, if you just go into present moment awareness, there's no concept. And actually, some people could say that is Nibbana, but we can't live that way. You know, most of us can't. So when you go about in your worldly ways, and even in monastic ways, we attach, no, not attach, we use, we try to use concepts skillfully. Not attaching to them, but, um, you know, there's a conventional word and the, uh, not conventional word, the transcendent word, if you like. I wouldn't call it holy or unholy, because with, when you introduce that, sounds like a judgment, like good and bad. And it's actually only two sides of the same coin, in a way. And it's more... So in, in Buddhist terms, you have worldly, the worldly and the, the, the mundane and the super-mundane. That is the the uh, terms we use, and the mundane is actually everything in this human life, in this human world, animal world, animal realm, so-called hell realm, if you want, also, um, and then it includes even the fine material realms or the immaterial realms which you may experience when your meditation goes more deeply. So that all is still worldly. Um, and then, you know, in, um, these are concepts when I tell you them like this. And there's obviously, there are people who have experienced that. So then you have different stages, if you like, of enlightenment, of liberation. And so the first one is the stream enterer, where you leave the first three fetters behind, the identification with your body and your personality, and the clinging to uh, certain practices and rituals, you know, what, what you know, and skeptical doubt. So when you leave that behind, then you are you have entered the stream. That means the the path to nibbana, and it's irreversible. So um, the Buddha was teaching that with latest within seven lifetimes you will reach, or um, reaching is not really the right word. You will have liberated your mind so far that you realize enlightenment. So it's a gradual liberation we go through, 
And so the supermundane starts with the level of sotapanna, with stream entry, where actually things are experienced in a new way, in a different way, where the mind doesn't get confused by attachment. You know where you know where where it goes, where you have what you have to work with, how you respond, and um, so the Buddha wouldn't call it. Maybe in in the translation you can call it holy life, you know, the monastic life. But it's not. I would be careful um, to see it in you know good bad. We have only one choice. We have to acknowledge what is, where we are in this moment, and see the way forward, find the way forward from there. And everything else I would... uh, I, I wouldn't want to talk in a different way about it. There might be other traditions, you know, but that is... I've chosen this tradition because I really appreciate that the Buddha is teaching something and then encouraging us to find out for ourselves and not kind of go that we have to believe something. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was just that um, I find with a lot of lay people, possibly the one thing that takes them away from Buddhism or practicing Buddhism is this thought that I can never quite be this their perception of what a monastic is, that they can't be the real deal. Well, we can have all these thoughts, you know, and then mm. you can notice the thought, and you can ask yourself, is it true? Mm. And you don't know. And the not knowing is a good starting point, because in that moment you have let go of, of you know, a, a kind of fixed perception. And the, in that moment you can actually open up to your your actual experience in this moment. So that is what I would encourage. I don't like really to to discuss these things because that doesn't really lead anywhere. I would really encourage you to, you know, that that is skeptical thinking. You know, if you engage in skeptical thinking, it just leads to more skeptical thinking. It can be very intelligent. You can make all PhDs with it. I mean, that's what, you know, our culture is often about. But it wouldn't lead you to happiness. It would lead you to a PhD. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> In the best case, it would lead you to a PhD. So uh, I don't want to put PhDs down. You know, they can be helpful. And yeah, so practicing is really, you know, being with your concept and seeing how the mind gets fixated on something and then you don't really get anywhere. And you, you think in circles. I mean, that's my experience. <laughs> yes. Maybe you t- wait for the uh, microphone. I just wanted to say quite lightheartedly that um, the Sangha that I belong to there's a chap in it called Dave, and he's extremely intelligent. And I've never known anybody read and be able to reiterate so much Buddhist text. And um, his nickname, and he knows it, and we do it lightheartedly. Whenever we talk about something, he'll always say, "Oh, but that's a concept." 
but that's the concept. And his nickname is Concept Dave. That's what we call him. And um, he's, he seems to us to be trapped in this moment where he doesn't really want to let go. And he has fear of the unknown, of truly taking the path. And uh, it's just really, you know, leading on from what you're saying about concepts, you can trap yourself thinking uh, in a certain way and not going on the way, not taking the path. And anyway, I think he'll probably be known as Concept Dave until the day he dies. <laughs> I mean, that's a nice story. <laughs> but uh, I, I would also, you know, it's true when you start teaching, you need to use concept, otherwise you can't talk, you know. And yet, it's it's also an, a skill not to get trapped in your own concept. I mean, the Buddha definitely was using concept. You know, it's a skill for means how we communicate. How how else can he uh, pass on what he has experienced? And he didn't engage in in. Um, you know, these intellectual discussions. You know, if somebody had a question, he would, was willing to answer it, but answer it. But if somebody tried to engage him in, in, in a kind of intellectual discussion, he would not answer, he would go away, because he didn't, you know, it wouldn't lead to liberation. So, in that sense, there are a few examples in the suttas, you know, where, where he met really learned scholars who were just keen to engage him in a real conquer, con conquest with words. And he would say, I teach the end of, of um, these kind of quarrels, you know, and was not interested. And yet, you know, he was very keen that his disciples would know the concepts and would uh, learn to practice with them and see see what the benefits of the, of these concepts are. So, I think it's... Um, also, with his, with his wisdom, he could, you know, sometimes the, his disciples came and said, you know, to this uh, seeker you said that, and to that one you said the opposite. How does it come? And he said, well, that, that one was too confused, so I couldn't tell him the whole truth, and the other one that would just have made him more confused. So I, I made it more simple for him, and the other one was ready to hear. And so also the way you relate to you know, in your teachings is dependent on, on who is listening and where they are. And yet, we, one danger of, of uh, teaching is that you start to identify, you know. You, as I mean, being a school teacher, you have... You have all your criteria, and one of the skills is really to let them go and to start at zero, um, because we can get so fixed. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say start. It's not possible to start at zero because there's so much experience which always comes through. But it's good to to look at things from a different side from a different concept, if you like. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I was interested in what you were speaking about tasting food and um, the anticipation of like or dislike and how it changes when you are there to taste it. It's not what you expect. And um, I've experienced something similar in relation to the world of emotion, which um, I think many people, including myself, have a great fear of overwhelming emotion. And how the same movement, which requires something of me to go into it, to go towards it, can bring the realization that it's not exactly what you were afraid of, it's not exactly as you expected. Mm. And I wonder if you could speak a little more about that, because it's such a big and important area. So, <clears throat> if you speak about emotions, you know, that is something like fear or feeling of feeling of overwhelm or excitement, joy, uh, you know, there is a long, long list, you know, of, of possible emotions. Um, if you want to cut it down, it's something going back to anger, between anger, greed, and hatred. I mean, that's the kind of Buddhist cornerstones of, for emotions and, and drives, what drives us. And emotion, the word emotion is com, comes from motion, is movement, you know, setting something in motion, setting the mind in motion. It's, it's this kind of wanting or not wanting behind that. And so it makes us react usually. And um, if you look more closely at, you know, how the Buddha is kind of trying to explain how these movements or originate, you know, it, it would go, maybe one way to explain it, it would go back to the six senses. So we have the six senses where we get in contact with the world. So first is the, the sense base, eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, and the, the mental uh, cognizing, um, so six senses in that in, in Buddhist uh, psychology, and so this is how we meet the world. You know, the sense objects. When when once the senses meet the sense objects with clear, or more or less clear um, sense consciousness, then then that is what we call contact. And then the next thing which arises is with it is, is a feeling of liking, not liking. No, no, it's actually more sense of, more, more subtle first. It's, a, it's pleasant, unpleasant, or, you know, neutral somehow, neither pleasant, unpleasant. So, I think you can all relate to that. You know, you, you all know this kind of first step of feeling, but then it goes very quickly into 
a kind of reaction that I, I like. I like this. I, I want. I want more. You know. Or, or I have to get away away from that. That's dangerous. Or then then the thinking comes in. And then then we we create the world out of that, and we are part of our own creation. <laughs> and so the emotions come really when we start believing what what we make out of it, this liking and not liking. And um, what you describe is, you know, that sometimes we have emotions, if we meet something in the world, we feel overwhelmed. And that is rather, oh, I need to get away from it, this is too much. So then the thinking comes really in. And um, if we believe it, you know, then we are in stress. We are in real, real stress. We can't sleep. We, you know, it's it's very unpleasant. Not only unpleasant. It's actually on a physical level very um, disturbing, if you like. And it, on 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 a heart level, it may be painful. You know. And it's very usually these reactions go so quick. And when we are used to believe what we think, then we are a victim in that sense. But you can start to question that. And one way to question is when you feel, when you become aware of of this thought, oh, I feel overwhelmed, this is overwhelming, this is too much. This is too much for me. You know, you have created something which comes your way and a me which is overwhelmed. And you can really, if if it's not too overwhelming, too threatening, you know, I would always practice with with kind of gentle situations because that gives us a bit time to reflect and and question our reaction. You can actually ask yourself, does it have a label like overwhelmed? Does it say overwhelmed, or what is the what is the physical experience of it? So and it may be that it's breathtaking, or it may be that something shuts down, wants to shut down, you know, like a strong noise, for example, or somebody speaks too loud or comes too close, and you have the feeling, you know, it, it, some something contracts and you just want to move out. So just if you if you learn to before you label it. Um, just observe more finely what is going on on a physical level, on, on a sensation level, really physical sensations. And then you don't go immediately into the spiral of um, naming, judging, reacting to it. So, And it's only possible in the beginning if it's not too strong you know, experiences. So when you find something overwhelming, you can ask yourself, so does it really say overwhelm? Or is it just this kind of, oh, feeling? So could there be other words for it? And really play. You know, it might be that it's, oh, it makes me shake a bit. You know, it makes the energy rise. It makes me more alert. Or you might might say I could call it excitement. You know, for, what for one per, one person would label overwhelm, the other person would label exci- it's exciting. 
And it's really interesting, the moment you give it a different name, your reaction will be different. The way you relate to it will be different. And so some experiences can be seen as overwhelming, or you can see that it's a lot of energy going through my system at the moment. I had a very, I, I can give you an example, I had a very, got a very, very unpleasant, it was a kind of family thing, I got a very unpleasant email and I was really sorry for myself that I opened it before I wanted to go to bed. And so I, I was shaking, it really shook me. So I thought, oh God, no, I better don't respond to this now, you know. And so I went to bed. I couldn't sleep because I was literally shaking and I was furious. And, oh, interesting, you know, none. <laughs> uh, and I, my, my, my judgmental, it was, a, and with family things, especially, we can get so judgmental, you know, we have so much stories about, you know, not the first time that this happens. <laughs> and, and so, I just realized, look, it's 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, I don't know what time it was. So you, you put that down now and just have a good night's sleep and look at it tomorrow. And I couldn't sleep. I, I was just so furious. And then at some point, I just thought, okay, so just watch, you know, just apply, apply, you know, how do you practice with that? Okay, just see on a physical level, how does it feel? And I just could feel that although it was 10 or 11 o'clock, I was not tired at all. The whole body was just full of energy. And I said, oh, how interesting, you know. It's just a lot of energy here. I don't have to see it as something negative, it's just a bit unusual. Usually that doesn't happen at this time of day or night. So can I just relax into this energy? I don't even have to say enjoy, just can I relax into this energy and breathe into it? And before long I fell asleep, you know. So if I, when, as soon as I stopped to recreate the story which just created more distress, um, it wasn't a problem, it was simply energy, which is neutral, if you like. And so that was a teaching for me. And I wouldn't have called it excitement, because it didn't have the kind of thing where you want to pay money for, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and people do pay money, you know, they go on, on a fair and, and go up and down the roller coaster, and somebody else would say, "How do? You, why do you do that to yourself?" And some people just want excitement. So, yeah, I would just encourage you, really, again, you know, really to observe, really, what is happening more on a on a physical, cellular level. Where can you feel it? You know, how do I know that I'm overwhelmed? That's a word. You know, how do I feel that? Yeah, a lot of heat, a lot of wind, a lot of energy, you know. So, yeah, that's an example. So, I trust that you you can learn to look at things in a different way and and <clears throat> dismantle a bit the habit of of forming certain 
judgments, what you can bear with and what you can't bear with. And a new world is opening up. I mean, we, it's, if, when we don't react in the you know, reaction, we call usually what we are used to when we just go into habitual behavior, judgment, reaction. And in, in Buddhist practice we speak when you come more from a, from a direct awareness, you know, what is happening in the body, then it's more the question, how do you respond to that? You know, what would be a skillful response here, which wouldn't make things more complicated or more painful? And one of the pain, uh, one of the skillful responses would really be to see, oh, this is, you know, this is a go to the back to the feeling level. This is something I register as unpleasant. And does it mean I can't be with it, or can I just bear with this unpleasantness? Because once you go, you break the dynamic of it. It, you know, that you don't go into the reaction. Actually, you will notice that things do change if, if you pay attention to them. I mean, you can see that with children. When you have a child, you know, falls to the floor, starts screaming, there's only pain in this moment. You know, the whole world is pain. And then the, the mother or father attends to it, and the next moment they're giggling. You know, they've forgotten it. Because these things don't stay with us if we don't cling to them. So if there's a a friendly presence which can actually embrace the experience, it's it's very quickly released and moves on to an insight or a different way to look at it. And I don't want to, to um, outrule that there are, you know, if if we have had an ex how to say it, um, very traumatic experience, it's not that quick. No, we have really also to have some some um, respect, I would say, for for maybe traumatic experiences, and we can't just say, "Oh, I shouldn't feel that way." You know, it's sometimes the cellular memory memory is so deep that it takes some skills of holding and being with it and calming down and maybe even asking for help, you know, asking for somebody who is listening to whatever the story is or the memory is which is coming up. So there's not only one way, but I mean for the more daily experience of, of feeling attracted to something or, or really averse to something, I would really recommend to, to Experiment in, in naming it differently, or just go really to the physical sensation level of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ajahn, you were talking about the energy that comes with anger and all these very strong negative emotions. I don't know whether you were there at Chithurst for the dedication of that stupa for Ajahn uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya. Um, they, they, they were, you know, naturally they spoke about his life. He lived to be 102 years old. Uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya, do you remember him? 
I, no, I, I don't think I met him personally, ah. but I, I hear the stories about yeah, yeah, him. <laughs> yeah. And one was that somebody asked him, how is it that he's always so pleasant, calm, uh, friendly, uh, and, and lived to be so long, you know, this towards the end of his life. One was that he did a lot of meditation and a lot of walking meditation. But the interesting thing here was that uh, he never got angry. He never got angry. He did not believe spending his energy on anger. <laughs> I thought that was a very, very good uh, one for us to reflect upon. Mm. The amount of energy you have with these negative emotions, jealousy. As you said, the whole mm. body gets caught mm. up in it, isn't it? So I thought, anger. Yeah, anger can be very consuming, yes. you know, yes. energy consuming. And also, it can make us very righteous, and then that keeps the anger spiral going. So, um, it's very important really to, you know, you can, of course you can have somebody, you know, who is a monk and obviously has practiced a lot, you yes. can take him as an ideal. And it's good to orient towards people who, who could do it, you know. So sometimes we believe we, it's not possible. It is possible. Mm. And it's a result of practice and good karma in that sense, you know, that somebody is beyond anger. Or at least never reacts. You know, there might be a mild reaction. I don't know. I, you know, I can't, I didn't speak with him about it. So some people who don't, react with anger, might still experience feelings of upset or, you know, milder forms. But when, once you, once you really practice with these questions that, you know, what helps me, for example, with anger is if somebody comes in an angry way towards me, I can see a person who experiences anger and is reacting on anger, but it it doesn't have to make me angry. I, it doesn't. If I form a thought that this person shouldn't be that way, I could easily get angry. You know. So I try not to engage in in this kind of thought. I I really try to see more the suffering of somebody who is obviously upset about something and gets lost in his own thoughts and becomes that anger. But I have a choice, and most situations, you know, that I don't become that. I can f Sometimes anger is so strong that you even can feel it. You can't even say it's yours or mine or, you know, it's just <laughs> this energy. And um, so if I have my, you know, my inner balance, I can receive somebody who's angry um, with an open heart even, you know, and really ask, can I help you? You know, it's not, not you shouldn't be angry and you, you don't practice in the wrong way. I mean, you know, that wouldn't help. It's more really, can I help you? So, and to get there, we have to address our own, you know, remnants of, of anger. What makes me angry? What is my... Uh, intolerance in a way and work with that
yeah, it's it's really good to hear, you know, of you know people who really went beyond anger and and are remembered as being incredibly kind and and compassionate and helpful. Thank you. So one more question. <laughs> Hi, John. Um, thanks. Um, I happen to be a PhD student, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> um, I got this question. Uh, basically, I've been following Law's teaching from Ajahn Brown as well, from uh, his talk as well. So uh, he talks about expectations in mm -hmm. life. Uh, well, he says that expectation might lead to suffering. So, but in the real world, that everyone has an expectation or a goal to achieve in the end. So, how can we cope that in our life? Like, you know, sometimes in life we need expectations. You expect dangers coming in a good way. You avoid the danger. But what happens if you want to set yourself in a goal or you have a dream that you set yourself in in your life, but you didn't achieve it? So that comes suffering, but how do you cope that? I mean, in both ways, like suffering and happiness in the life. I mean, again, I think the basic ingredient is to reflect on impermanence and suffering and not self. So if I know, you know, from monastic life, you know, I... I've worked a lot in the gardens here. <clears throat> and of course you want to look, have the garden look beautiful. And you get help. I see a former gardener, a new gardener. So uh, you, you, you set yourself a goal. All right, I want to weed it. But when you weed a flower bed, you know, you know, they will come back. You may get out maybe 90% of the roots even and the 10% which are entangled between the good plants, you know, they will come back. So I know that when I, I do set a goal like this, it will be a temporary success in the best case, you know. So if I do my job well, there will be no weeds maybe for a month or two, if I don't do it well, there will be weeds back in two weeks after the next rainfall. You know? So to do things with a you know, with this knowing that it will be impermanent is actually helping us not to have the wrong expectations. So when I look at the glass and see it as broken, if it really breaks, I think, okay, this is Right, this is what, it, what what I know what happened. If you have, I mean, it's more, the more personal it becomes, maybe the more difficult, you know, when you have a child, when you have, you know about everybody who's born, destination is, you can say, destination is happiness, destination is having three children, have a house, have a car, have a this and that, the best job. Actually, destination is, this body will die. So, and in between, you have the, you know, certain uh, possibilities to, to 
uh, have a good life and a skillful life and use it for your own benefit and for benefit for the benefit of others and ho hopefully use it for for liberating yourself for, from suffering so if you live your life really with that consciousness you know then you make choices where you are less vulnerable to a certain degree you know if your mother the karma of a mother is that you are attached to your children and if they get sick you will suffer with them you know if you get married you know one of us might die before the other that might be always suffering for the other person so when we lose what we like there's suffering that's part of human reality and yet knowing it you know doing making our choices with that clear knowing allows us to stand in a different way in the world so when when you set up a business you know you of course you do the best you can and and you know have all the right contacts and have all the right knowledge and i don't know what and um yet you know yes it may be an, if if i'm you know it may be if i'm lucky if if i'm good I will have success, and it may not last forever. You know, it may. Can I use it? Even you know what? So it's very interesting to speak about success because we are so. The more competitive the society becomes, the more mad we get about success. And I like some stories. You know, I think it was about this. The person who invented the light bulbs, Mr. Watt. I don't know his forename. Um, he did years of experiments. And so when he finally got the praise and the honor, you know, because he, it worked and it became a big business, he was interviewed and, um, the, the, interviewer said something like you know how did you cope with all these failures you know you you made thousands of experiments how could you cope with, this, with all the failures you know and he said he was surprised he said oh i never called saw it that way <laughs> it was just for me it was a success when i found out it doesn't work this way then i have to find a different way so, so he had this, this, you know, innumer innumerable possibilities of possible, you know, things he could try out. And each, each failure, he just ticked and, ah, I know this doesn't work, so I try this one. So he was never disappointed in that. I mean, I don't know whether that's just a tale or whether there were times where he was disappointed. But it, it's a good teaching, at least, you know. So when you set something up, you set yourself up for learning in the first place. And always look both ways. You know, it's not only the success there, it's also what happens here. Or the, the failure there, what happens here. And how can you see it in a, in a, in a wider context? That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So I wish you have a nice evening. It's still a beautiful day, so maybe it's even a good afternoon. Um, 
Yeah, I offer that for your reflection and uh, I hope you can make use of it.